All right, so tonight we're going to be in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, if you want to turn over that way. I've got a handout that was uh, put on Facebook, and I forgot to put it in the email, but I'll make sure I get that in there next time. So if you want to use that to follow along, uh, that'll be there. Um, and uh, I want to do a little bit of a you know inter reminder, recap of where we've been. I didn't know if we'd have anybody tonight who hadn't been with us on Sundays, uh, but it's been a week and a half now since we've been together, so we can all use a reminder every now and then because it's Revelation. It's kind of a complicated book anyway. Um, you know, one of the things we talked about uh, when you know, we're looking at how do you interpret this book, right? There's so many different ways that so many different people read Revelation. Um, the way that I look at it, it's uh, looking at the different genres, that it's an apocalypse, it's a considered prophecy, and it's a letter, right? So you kind of bring all those things together. Um, and starting with that letter idea, you know, how are we understand this book? It has to be anchored in the original context, right? Since this was written to seven churches in, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, whatever we think of this had to also make sense to them somehow. And so uh, I'm reading it as a symbolic description of kind of repeating patterns of things that happened through history. It was talking about their situation under the Roman Empire. Uh, it speaks to our situation and it speaks to other situations in between. You know, we're kind of seeing what are some of the things that happen over and over through history um, as we're getting towards you know, God's final consummation of all things, right? I think, uh, and I at least take it that uh, everything in Revelation hasn't happened because there's still an end coming. Um, and so it's not as much that it's like a code or this timetable of the end times. Um, and so when it says, you know, even in the very first verse, these things must soon take place. Uh, we're trying to figure out how could that could make sense to the first hearers and make sense to us. And so it's even maybe a different view of time. Um, as far as, you know, the, the big theme of it or kind of guiding questions, uh, it's, it's about how God wins, how God defeats evil and, and makes all things new. But how? How does God do that? Uh, and that we see it's through the slaughtered lamb, which is John's image of Jesus. And uh, we have this idea of conquering or victory that comes up over and over. And, and so we always are looking, well, how does the lamb conquer? It's through self-sacrifice. And we as his, his witnesses, his followers, we're trying to imitate that. Uh, so we had uh, the letters to the seven churches, the first few chapters. Then we had the throne room scene in chapter four and five. Uh, and in that scene, we're introduced to this scroll, right, that God has that uh, you could say is symbolizing what God is going to do to make things right. Uh, but it's sealed with these seven seals, and, and they're trying to figure out how they can open it, right? Only the slaughtered lamb is worthy to open this scroll. And as we saw last time in chapter six, uh, began opening those scroll of the seals, and it's depicting things like the four horsemen, which uh, I understand is uh, the suffering that continually happens on earth, right? When has there not been war or famine or economic uh, injustice, right? These things happen over and over in different ways. And so we're seeing this is part of what happens because of human rebellion. And along with that, you had the martyrs uh, who are asking, how long, right? How long, Lord, before you uh, make things right? And that's kind of the question we're asking through this as well. Uh, and maybe a question that we're all asking right now, how long are we going to have to go through this? Uh, but as we're thinking about this scroll that's kind of central to the story here, um, these things that are happening as the, as the seals are opened, 
that's not what's in the scroll, right? We're going to see that in chapter 10. Um, that's it's things that happen along the way. Um, and going back to chapter five, uh, if you want to turn back there real quick as, as we're getting into chapter seven, uh, we see this pattern that I think is important, right? Because we're told in chapter five, uh, well, yes, who's worthy to open the scroll? And uh, we, he hears about a lion, right? But then he turns and what does he see? He sees the lamb, right? So he hears about a lion, but he sees a lamb. And then that's how Jesus is identified as, as a lamb. Um, and so remember that pattern. I think that could be important to chapter seven uh, and, and how we understand what's happening here. Uh, but the final verse of chapter six is, as all these, these terrible things are happening, the kings of the earth and, and the powerful people are saying, who can stand through this, right? As they're looking at all the terrible things, who can stand? And chapter seven answers that question. It's, it's not one of the seals. It's kind of a digression, but it's answering that, that question that they ask. So uh, before we get into chapter seven, you know, it's, we're going to see this scene of, of people in heaven. Um, and so maybe kind of an opening discussion question is, how, do we expect the number of people to be saved to be large or small? Uh, what are some of the different things you've heard? What are some different options that are out there floating around? Uh, what do you think? Is uh, a lot of people going to be saved uh, or is it going to be a only a few? Or how do we define those terms, maybe? What does a few mean? What does a lot mean? Well, remember that God said he didn't want anybody to be lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's important from, from Second Peter. God doesn't want anyone to, to perish. Um, so in what sense does God get what God wants? No. All right. Someone else? What are some other maybe verses that come to mind? The wide gate um, and the narrow gate. Okay, yeah. Narrow is the road, right? That leads to life. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Uh, I remember hearing plenty of sermons and messages on that. Um, and, you know, and we can see, right? Not everybody gets it. Um, and it's easy to take the easy road that doesn't challenge you. And following, really following the way of Jesus is challenging. And not everybody follows that. Uh, but yeah, how does that relate to how many are going to be saved? All right, well, that's, that's kind of a bigger picture question to think about. Um, you know, and again, I, if you, I look across the scope of Christian history, you see groups that emphasize it's such a small number, and of course, they're in that number, and then groups that uh, look at it in a more inclusive way. So uh, that's what we're thinking about as we look at this. So we'll start here in chapter seven with this 144,000. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to do all the numbers at the end. I'll, I'll skim over that part. All right. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed. 
the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 sealed, and, and so on and on with all 12 tribes, uh, 12,000 from each, which gets us our 144,000. So uh, here we're kind of seeing an image of, of the church, I think. It's uh, one of the things we'll talk about. Who is, who is this group here? Uh, and I think it's important for us, again, to put ourselves in the shoes of John or John's readers. Um, they would have seen the church as this really small group uh, that's really threatened. And, you know, they didn't know what the future was going to hold for them. Um, whereas we can look at the church and see it as this global movement, right? Billions of people uh, across history, uh, across the entire world uh, that are a part of this, this group. So it's a little easier for us to see, well, this is a lot of people, but for them, uh, I mean, we don't know the number exactly of how many Christians there were uh, by the end of the first century, but it's not a huge number, right? Because it's still pretty limited in scope in the Roman Empire. Um, and so it, I think, especially to them, we want to think about how, how uh, impressive these images here are in this chapter uh, that it's revealing, right? Revelation reveals who they really are and also who we really are. Uh, when, when we do feel like, you know, it's like Elijah, you know, I'm the only one that's left. I'm the only one that's still faithful or we're the only ones that are faithful. It's uh, God saying, no, actually look, there's, there's a lot more than, than what you're seeing. And uh, another kind of connection that goes in a different direction uh, to the previous chapter is this idea of, of sealing, right? It calls back to the seals that are on the scroll, um, but here it's, it's seals that are being put on the, the faithful. Again, uh, seals uh, is a sign of protection. It's a sign of ownership. So these people are both protected by God. Uh, we see that as he's telling these angels, you know, hold off so that they can be sealed. Uh, and then also that they belong to God. Although I think it's interesting, and, and this is a, a bigger message in Revelation as well, that being sealed, um, even if it is a sign of protection, it doesn't mean that we get to avoid suffering uh, as much as we might want it, right? Instead, that we are uh, protected through suffering, right? Not saved from it, saved through it. Uh, that's, that's the way, again, of Jesus, and that's the way that it works for us. And also through uh, New Testament, we see being sealed as a metaphor for, for baptism. Uh, it, they use that language in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. Uh, so baptism does the same thing, that it kind of marks us as God's people, that sign of protection that we have. And you can even see possibly that uh, later in chapter 13, when we get the mark of the beast, that's kind of like a, a mirror or even a parody of, of this seal here, because it also is, is on the forehead marking people for, for uh, the beast instead of for, for God. Um, and so now we get to this question of, okay, but who is this 144,000? All right, George, let's say good night. All right, see you later, buddy. Morning, George. Say hi. Hi. <laughs> Want to show off his Lego? Hope you're all impressed. All right. Uh, so who could this 144,000 refer to? Uh, there's at least three different ways that, that we could take it. So one would be that it is literally saying there are going to be only 144,000 people uh, who are saved in the end. Um, you know, some, some have read it that way through history. And of course they would think our movement is part of that, that number. Um, but to me, it, that's pretty ridiculous or crazy to think that that's, that's the only amount of people that God is gonna save in the end, right? If, as Peter says, 
God doesn't want anyone to perish uh, if he's only able to save 144,000 people across all of Christian history. Um, that's that's kind of sad, right? Um, and it is true that in, in, in an apocalypse, you know, there's other books that are like this. Um, it seems to often be that there's only a small number that make it, right? The remnant that are faithful as opposed to everyone else. Um, but I think we get a better picture of what might be going on here when we look at what this number could actually symbolize, right? Uh, as I said early on, numbers in Revelation, uh, it's usually more what that number represents than the actual number itself, right? So uh, do a little math, 144 is 12 times 12, right? And 12 is a number that symbolizes completeness. And it's also a number that's associated with Israel, right? Because as you see, we have the 12 tribes of Israel. We also have the 12 apostles. Uh, and so it could even be uh, kind of multiplying those together. We've seen the 24 elders, which is probably something similar. Um, and so uh, if it's some association with Israel, and, and we even have a mention of the tribes here, uh, that's another way that some people would interpret this, that this is God saving um, the people of, of Israel, the ethnic Israelites. Um, and again, whether that's actually 144,000 Israelite people or the number is, is representative, uh, some still are taking this mainly to be referring to this group is talking about uh, Jewish people who will be saved. Um, one of the things that I think makes that difficult is that really um, at this point, and even you could probably argue by the first century, um, most Jewish people weren't able to identify themselves as a certain tribe. Uh, after the Assyrians came in and, and destroyed the northern kingdom where you know, 10 of those tribes were, um, most of those identities were hard. You know, people weren't able to keep up with that in the same way, right? Uh, the reason they're called the Jewish people is because most uh, come from the tribe of Judah, which was in the south. Uh, and so um, the idea that there's going to be equal numbers of people from each of these tribes, um, uh, that's, that's a little harder to, to make that case. So uh, a third way of understanding this, this group is that it's uh, more of a symbolic reference to the church, all of God's people, as Israel. And uh, this, this is kind of where I would lean, uh, because you see uh, ideas like this in the New Testament, right? Um, that it's Jew and Gentile come together to make this uh, new Israel. Um, uh, you see that in places like Romans 9, uh, Romans 11, uh, right? You have that image in Romans 11 of uh, the, the wild shoots that are grafted into the tree. Uh, I, I think that might be kind of what th this image is talking about here, that this is still talking about the, the church, uh, but that the church is, is part of Israel. Um, and that's not to say, you know, so God has given up on Israel, right? Again, we could have a long discussion about Romans 9 to 11, what Paul is trying to say there. Um, but I, I think it's this, that makes sense to me more in, in what we often see in the New Testament of thinking of Israel, not as just an ethnic group, but as a way of talking about all God's people. And so this could be referring to that. Uh, so uh, questions, thoughts on that? You know, um, I mean, what is... God's commitment to the people of Israel, ethnically. Um, does God need to uh, set them aside in any special way, or is it still expected that they should uh, follow uh, follow a Jesus, and that's the way to be saved? Again, 
what are some different ways? I guess actually we may get into that in, in the next group as well. Um, so we'll come back to that question. Um, how do we understand a relationship between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians and uh, non-Christian Jews? Uh, another thing to, to note here though is, um, right, we got 12 times 12, and then we also have the thousands, which in one sense, just that's sometimes that number is just added or multiplied into numbers in Revelation to just kind of say, this makes it uh, a bigger deal. Uh, but uh, a thousand in the Old Testament is very often a military uh, image or has military connotations. Um, it's, it's an army division, right? Uh, one of the easiest, easiest examples is uh, in 1 Samuel when they're singing the song that makes Saul mad about how Saul has killed his thousands, David is hundreds of thousands. Right, thousand is like a designation of troops. Um, so it could be, I, I think that's a good way to read this, that this is looking at kind of uh, the army of, of God almost. And, and that fits, right? We had that question in chapter six from the martyrs, when are you going to avenge our blood? And so this could be like, well, here's, here's the army that's going to do it, right? And again, through history, we've seen the church often has wanted to have more power, to fight back, to repay evil with evil, meet violence on its terms. But the big question, I think, in this book is, is that the way of the lamb? And is that what we're meant to do? All right, because going back to that pattern that we saw in chapter five, we see it here as well. Uh, this is what John hears, that there's 144,000. But what does he see? That's what we're going to get to next. All right. Uh, so any other questions about, about that? All right, well, let's get to... Uh, second half and see how these two relate and maybe we can try and figure some of this out so starting in verse nine after this i looked and i there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb robed in white with palm branches in their hands they cried out in a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our god who is seated on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these robed in white and where have they come from? I said to him, sir, you're the one who knows. Then he said to me, these are those are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Uh, you notice how often in Revelation it just kind of like swells into these scenes of, of worship, right? It's, uh, it's a powerful image to me of, of you know, as you hear these things, people can't help but, but sing. So here, right, he, he heard there was this number of 144,000, but then he looks and he sees this multitude that can't be counted. Right? Before the 144,000, we're from the 12 tribes of Israel here, it's from every tribe and nation and language. And so a big question here is, 
So what's the relationship between these two groups, the 144,000 and this, this multitude? So again, uh, a few different ways that, that people interpret this. One could be that these are just separate groups and it's almost like separate tracks, right? So the 144,000, those are Israelites, and then the multitude are Gentiles. Uh, and again, whether that's they're saved, you know, because they followed the, the, the Mosaic law or uh, they're still uh, committed to Christ, but they're, they're still Jewish. And so they're still counted in that way. People take it in, in different directions. Um, you know, I did have, you know, when I've taught this before, um, I had one person in particular who was very adamant that, you know, since God promised these specific things would happen for Israel and the prophets, God had to do that and give them, you know, an earthly kingdom. And, and so this is how God is, is being true to that promise. Um, that's not the, the stance that I take, but um, that is, you know, one of the options that's out there. Um, another is that this, the second group, the multitude, just includes 144,000, almost as if, well, at first I thought that I saw that the group, or I heard the group was only this big, but uh, it's actually bigger, right? So it's just kind of setting you up to expect one thing, but then, um, but it's including all of them. Um, but then uh, a third way, it's, uh, and this is again, the way that I uh, understand it, is it's two ways of describing the same group, right? So, and, but the second way of describing this, the group is more true, right? So that fits this pattern of the lion and the lamb from chapter two, uh, right? Jesus is the lion, and yet it's more true to say that he's the lamb, right? That he doesn't use that uh, power in the way that we would expect, but he lays that power down and chooses uh, to, to uh, the path of self-sacrifice, and so, uh, in, in fact, another reason to think that there might be a connection in the way that these, these patterns work, uh, the lion is from the tribe of Judah, which is listed first here, right? Even though they, he wasn't the first, you know, firstborn son of, of Israel. Uh, and so it's a way of saying that he expects this one thing, but it's actually another thing, right? So we expect the number saved is small, right? So small, you can count it, even though, you know, 144,000 seems like a lot. It's in the grand scheme of things, that's actually a pretty small number. Um, but actually, the number saved is beyond numbering. Uh, and however you understand the way that it limited it to uh, the tribes of Israel, it's not limited by any means. Right? so John, in that sense, if this is what he's doing here, uh, or what's happening, it's he's subverting those apocalyptic expectations that it's only this small remnant that's going to make it. It's, no, it's, it's a multitude beyond what you can count uh, that's going to be saved. Um, and, and again, that, that makes more sense to me as opposed to the idea of like, well, if you're Jewish, then you're saved for being Jewish. And if you follow Jesus, you're saved for following Jesus. Um, salvation isn't dependent on ethnic identity it's that's by the blood of the lamb right that's that's what cleanses us right and that's what it even says uh down in verse 14 these are the ones that have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb so that's that's the marker for the people of god um however you understand that is could be baptism could be uh following the way of jesus uh, for some it was actually uh they were martyred as he was but um you know, we know that's not the fate for everybody, thankfully. Um, and so 
and again, if, if that earlier image was a military image, here we're seeing it's not that, right? Uh, and that also, I think, is a, is a New Testament image that while sometimes that language is used, right, put on the full armor of God, as, as Ephesians 6 says, he also says, our battle's not against flesh and blood. So the idea is that the church is not meant to be this army that goes out and fights physical battles against the kingdoms of the world. Uh, we don't do that because that's not what Jesus did. Uh, now, we are called to, to stand firm, and that's, again, that image from Ephesians 6. That's really what it's about, is uh, stand strong, you know, put on, this put on these things that will protect you, because there's going to be a lot of stuff that comes after you, but it's not our job to go out and, and fight these, these battles. Now, that's something we'll see as we get later in the book, right? It's, you see these scenes where it's setting up for a big battle, but you never see Christians going out and, and fighting, even though that may be what some would want or expect. Uh, and, you know, we see that in the way that it says uh, in, in the last verse, verse 17, that the lamb has become the shepherd, right? So uh, again, you know, the kind of pastoral imagery there, I think that's a nice subversion that, that a lamb becomes a shepherd. It's also a way of saying that way. his way, the way of the lamb, that's what he's leading us in. And if you're going to follow the lamb, uh, you need to be like him. And that's, that's how he's shepherding. We follow his way, his method of defeating evil, which is not to overcome evil with evil, but to overcome evil with, with good. good. Um, so I don't know, other thoughts on, on how you could fit these, these groups together. The 144,000, the multitudes, that, that makes sense that it's uh, maybe saying it's not so much this, but it's more this. Is that, does that make sense? Take that as a yes. <laughs> I know it's hard to get uh, discussion going on here, but uh, you know, uh, I mean, again, uh, Revelation is is so complex, and there's so many different thoughts. My hope is always I can give you different options, and, and I'll tell you which one I lean towards and why I think that fits best. But it's it's uh, definitely up for interpretation because these symbols uh, they don't always tell us straight out exactly what they mean, but. Uh, again, it's, it's about following the way of the Lamb, and uh, we're seeing that it, it, salvation is through Him, and it's, it's a bigger salvation than what we expect. Uh, to me, I think that's what the good part of the good news here is, because uh, again, I think it's bad news to say, like, well, God wants to save people, but most aren't going to be a part of it, and so God's mostly going to give up on, on everybody and just take the few that He can get. Um, that's not as good of a gospel as, as God is able to have this entire multitude that's beyond what we expect. Um, that's, that's where I think our hope, hope should lead us if we're called to be people of hope. And you do also get this hopeful image at the end um, where they're before the throne and there's no hunger, there's no thirst. Um, he guides them to the water of life and God wipes every tear away from their eyes. Chris, uh, I have a question. Chris. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Verses 15 through 17. Yeah. Are, first of all, what, what uh, language do you think John wrote this in? Uh, well, the original manuscripts would have been Greek. Uh, that's all the Greek. book. Yeah, Greek. All the of the new, books of the New Testament were written in Greek. John, that was kind of like the, the English of their day in the Roman Empire. John, John, being a fisherman, knew Greek even though he was raised in a Roman culture. Yeah, uh, I mean, there what Latin was around, but like Greek was already so 
uh, prevalent across the Roman Empire. That's that was kind of the trade language, and um, you know, Jews in, in Judea would have been speaking Aramaic. Uh, that's part of the language that Jesus spoke. Uh, possible that Jesus knew Greek, we don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, the writers of the New Testament, this is what most people know, and so they would write in, in Greek. So, okay, why is it indented 15 through 17? Like, is it oh. a Greek in a poem, or what is it? Yeah, uh, really, that's up to the, the translators. Um, so in the earliest manuscripts, the way that they would write, it was all capital letters and no spaces between the words. Uh, that was just the style. And uh, they just kind of knew how to figure out the breaks. And uh, so, yeah, whenever it's, it's put into paragraphs and sometimes indented, if it's usually when the writers consider it or interpreters Wait, consider slow it down, kind slow of poetic. Down. Repeat, slow down a little bit for me. Sure. Repeat. Yeah. Uh, so it's the, the translators that make that choice to indent it, right? The original manuscript didn't have uh, any spaces. It didn't actually even have any punctuation. Um, the translators translated this as a poem, you know, like, mm -hmm. you, is that what you're thinking, Chris? Yeah, yes, because the earliest manuscripts I can uh, find you an example later, and it's just all capital letters, just all in a line. Yeah. Um, yes. And so it's it's pretty hard to read, even if you you know know Greek. Uh, you know. Because like we have several, there are many places in the in the New Testament where it's indented. Now sometimes yeah. it's from the Old Testament. And <laughs> yeah, if it's a quotation, this is not a quotation. No. Uh, it's it's one of the again. I, I think I mentioned this before. One of the things John does is. He is constantly picking up images um, or language from the Old Testament, but he never says, you know, as Isaiah says, and then actually quotes a verse. Uh, but yeah, this is more because it seems like it's a song that they're singing in, in heaven. Uh, that's why the translators choose to, to put it that way. But um, yeah, I can show you, and you know, this is a class I could do sometime of talking about the history of the Bible and um, the different manuscripts and how that changed over time eventually as the, the um, uh, scribes were translating it and making copies, they did start to put spaces between the letters and, and use punctuation. And so we're kind of picking up from that. But yeah, sometimes it's, it's, it's up for debate. Most of the times we can be pretty sure that's probably a good way to read it. But yeah, and there's probably some translations that don't put it like in this poetic form. But that's just the, the way that they choose to do it. That's, that's how mine has it too. So, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, you know, I mean, we, we just kind of take some of these things for granted, but uh, it's, you know, it's helping us see the choices that went into translation and interpretation. Uh, it even happens just with what's what in our English Bibles. All right, did I, did I clear that up enough for you? It's not indented in the one that I usually read. Okay, yeah, so some, yeah, Charlotte said it's not indented in hers, so. It, it just again depends on the translation how they how they wanted to put that in there or if you know if you have the king james version every verse was kind of like on its own right it was its own paragraph and so even choosing to put uh you know sections into paragraphs i think that's smart because that's probably how the writers were thinking but again that's that's a choice that translators make and sometimes we can talk about those choices uh, i think all this is super interesting is a Bible nerd, but <laughs> your mileage may vary. 
All right, so in those, those final verses that we're talking about, 15 to 17, we see some of these images that we do associate with, with the end, right? Especially that image of God wiping every tear from our eyes. Uh, that's something that we'll see mentioned directly in uh, 21 and 22. And so this is one of those places where it's kind of a vision of the end in advance. And I think this is one of those signs that uh, we don't need to try and tie Revelation to this strict chronological timetable of, you know, this thing happens and this thing. It's kind of, it's looking at the same event from different perspectives. And so it's like a sneak preview almost of, of that final scene when everything's made, made right and made new. We're seeing touches of that here. And again, you know, how does time work in heaven or in, in the new creation? Uh, that's, we don't really know, but this could point to it's maybe a little more complicated or, or different from the way we understand it. Um, but both a sense of God is making things right for people as they enter heaven and also God fully makes things right at the end. It's, it's both and rather than either or. Um, and so we trust that God is, is doing this even now uh, for our loved ones and um, they they're, have the water of life. They're not experiencing the, the painful things we experience. And so that's good news for them. And it's good news for us as, as we wait for it and the, the final consummation of making all things new. All right. Well, that's, that's chapter seven. A uh, little, little shorter today, but that's all right. Any final thoughts or final questions about, about that? All right. Well, thanks, everyone. We'll, uh, we'll do this again next Wednesday. And, and uh, like we said, we'll keep you posted as we're, we're figuring out plans for how things are, are phasing back together. But uh, the plan is this will be temporary and this will be back to Sunday morning. And, and some of us can actually be in person if you're able. Uh, so something to look forward to. All right. Well, thank you, you all. Gonna, thank you. When are they going to do the, um, the elders? When are they going to submit the yeah, we, we've got the names and, and that's something we're, we're talking through right now. And I think the shepherds are talking to some of the people we've, we've talked about. And uh, we're meeting again, uh, I think this Monday, uh, the leadership to talk through some of that. So yeah, I appreciate your patience. We did get a lot of submissions, so that's, uh, that's good, but it's given us a lot to, to work through. So yeah, and it's, another, you know, it's one of those things I think it'll be good for us uh, the closer we get to being back together, the better we'll be able to have some discussions as a church in person. Um, so, you know, we don't want to delay it too much, but we also want to make sure we can really discuss it as a church together. Because I don't know about you, I'm ready to be back together. <laughs> yeah. As great as Zoom is, uh, it's, it's uh, got its challenges too. It's not the same. What All right. Do well, we thanks, everyone. What we'll see you next, next time. Week? Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah, Charlie, you had a question? What chapter for next week? Uh, next week will be chapter eight. I think it'll it, actually it'll probably be eight and nine together because those okay. are um, getting into the trumpets and the bowls uh, and all those sort of things. So, or the bowls, I guess, are eight and nine, but they go together. So I want to kind of take that as a group. So yeah, if you want to read ahead. Uh, it'll be eight and nine for next time. All right. Thank, Thank you. you all. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night. Good night.